The Money Show. Other people's money. The best thing about this feature is we get to learn a little bit more personally about the people whose names we see and hear regularly, whether they be famous artists and authors, whether they be bankers and bottle washers, whether they be journos and all sorts of people. And it's a great privilege this evening to welcome to Other People's Money, Mia Milan, the Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director at Bexisa, who amongst the many, 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 many accolades and awards and the great public recognition that she has received for her work, she's got a Master's in Health Journalism. Um, I beg your pardon, a master's degree in science journalism from Stellenbosch, Reuters Foundation Medical Journalism Fellow, which he did at Oxford, Oxford University in 2001. And Mia Milan's been part of the fabric of South African society for many years, but her, her profile has risen quite substantially since she started Bexisa in 2013. It's part of the Mail and Guardian, of course. And Mia, great pleasure to have you on The Money Show this evening. This Bexisa journey has been I think quite remarkable by any journalism standards. It really has honed and focused in on the issues of public health for nearly a decade now. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Bruce. Yes, we started in 2013 and we are a donor-funded um, journalism organization, which means we are a non-profit and we get our money from philanthropists. So we don't really make profits. We, we're not a for-profit media organization. We are a non-profit. We, we we need those donor funds to survive. So about two, three years ago, as I mentioned, and then the 13 we started, but it was as the health desk of the Mail and Guardian. And then in 2019, we moved away from the Mail and Guardian and became an independent media organization. So we now publish our copy with the Daily Maverick Financial that Times. That makes more sense. Forgive, forgive, forgive the error. It's a very nice way of telling me to, <laughs> to sharpen up a little bit. Thank you, Mia. Um, but now, the, the subject of being donor-funded, and I came across this, uh, this idea in the United States, visiting newsrooms all over uh, New York City, and various, I mean, there's a huge amount of donor-funded journalism that allows for a specialization that the daily run-of-the-mill journalism doesn't allow, because newsrooms are underfunded, understaffed, and specialists don't really have a place in many newsrooms anymore, which is why I think this philanthropy aspect is so absolutely critical to public information. Yes, I think when it comes to specialist journalism, the thing about it is it's expensive because the kind of people you would like to recruit need sort of like a specialist knowledge in some field. And then they need, in addition to that, that ability to translate it into something that's easy to understand. And to do that takes time and that's part of why specialist journalism is expensive because if you want to get a quality product that time costs money and if you're in a normal newsroom and you have to write or produce daily news reports it becomes virtually impossible to do this kind of thing so the nice thing that you have at a donor-funded media organization or what or people also call it a media startup is that you don't have those pressures. So you can take the time to produce those stories. And that makes it an environment that is um, great to produce long-form or in-depth journalism. The part, however, that when you work at a place like that, that kind of pressures that you have that you don't have at a normal for-profit newsroom is that you need to spend so much time 
on branding because you need to make a name for your organization. So our journalists don't just write stories. They spend about a third of their time on things like creating social media for their stories, on doing radio or television interviews about their stories, or doing donor reporting things, which is not a nice thing to do. It's like quarterly reports that you have to submit that our donors know that you use their money well. And things like, you know, we have to track our tweets to show our donors who we reach, who retweets us. And that means it's not me sitting there and doing it, it's the entire team. And it means that you do stuff that you don't normally have to do in a normal newsroom. So yes, you have that nice thing that you have time, but you do other stuff too. No, absolutely. Uh, how do you, I mean, how do you manage your philanthropists? How do you manage your donors? Because there is always the risk that a philanthropist who is a wonderful donor on day one could turn into some sort of, I don't know, I'm thinking James Bond sort of themes here, uh, <laughs> but, but could turn into some sort of megalomaniac who's wanted to use the good work uh, for their own nefarious purposes. How do you manage the dichotomy of relationships there? But that's a great question, and it is something that is so crucial for donor-funded journalism to choose your donors well. Because the trick is to choose someone who has similar objectives to you. So say in the case of, the, of our organization, Becca Sister, we, our aim is to reach decision makers because we, in the end, want to inform policy. With We want to make sure policy makers are held accountable, but that they also create policies on evidence, on sound evidence. And it's important that we then choose donors who have similar interests. Because if you choose donors that have a, that want to reach a very different audience, the general public, for instance, then you're going to have a lot of friction and you're not going to, in the end, be able to do what you want to do. So I learned these sort of objective things because it's not something that you learn in journalism school and it's certainly not something that you learn when you report. I learned about it when I lived in Kenya for about four, five years. I worked for a media development organization for quite a while. And that's where I got introduced to how to write proposals, how to choose donors, how to budget for these things. It's a very different language and skill from journalism, but it's something that works very powerfully with it if you have that journalism skill and the donor thing. And during COVID, because he has been accused, you know, our main founder is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And, you know, anti-vaxxer people have certainly <laughs> accused us many times of <laughs> siding with Bill Gates because that foundation also supports vaccines. And that's why they say we support vaccines, which is nonsense. We support evidence-based measures or interventions for health, which vaccines are very well proven to work. But um, that is something that I think any donor-funded journalism organization faces and probably faced during the pandemic, that if they supported vaccines, people say, who's funding you? Um, it's very, the most important thing for me is not just selecting the right donor. It is selecting a donor that has a written, built-in, signed clause in there that they will not interfere with you editorially. If that with us is not signed and not very clearly understood, we don't accept money from a donor. Uh, and it, it's absolutely imperative because, I mean, so much good work can be so easily undone with even a whiff of uh, of any perception of impropriety. So it is absolutely critical to manage those relationships very well. Where are we in terms of the COVID-19 scourge that has really 
ripped apart large parts of society across the planet over the last two years. I saw um, APSA today saying they think that the fifth wave could be here as early as next month, just as we get used to not having too much COVID about. Um, the big COVID bogeyman sort of rears his head again. What is your reading as to where we are in the COVID cycle? So the short answer is no one really knows for certain. You won't find a scientist who would say 100% this is what's going to happen. So if you talk about a fifth wave, no one really knows if they're going to be a fifth wave and when is it going to happen. What we can do is we can make educated guesses based on the history of the pandemic, just say in South Africa. So if we look at what has happened with waves in the past, we've pretty consistently had a three-month gap between waves. And if we calculate that, then it looks like there might be a next wave in the first week of May. That does not mean it's going to happen. That just means if we look at what happened in the past, it doesn't, we've got no guarantee that the, the, you know, that the fifth wave is going to play out in the same way. What we do know about the fifth wave is it's not going to be caused by Omicron. If we want the fifth wave, we need a new variant. And the reason it won't be caused by Omicron is because the kind of immunity you get from Omicron if you're infected with it protects you pretty well from being infected with Omicron or falling severely ill, but also against Delta. So we would need an entirely new um, variant to be able to have a, um, a fifth wave. And also, if you look at the history, every single wave in South Africa has been driven by a new variant. And that variant, in order to displace Omicron, would almost certainly need to be more infectious or spread faster than Omicron. And because it would need to be able to not just spread, but also um, displace Omicron, it would need to be able to escape some sort of immunity because it would need to be able to, to, to get around Omicron immunity. Yeah. So if we look at a new wave, probably a one, a variant that's more infectious and a variant that can at least to some extent escape immunity. Uh, and look, it's, it's, it's always possible, I suppose, and that's the great concern. We simply don't know. But the history books tell us that these things eventually do peter out. Um, the, the plagues of Egypt eventually petered out. Plagues eventually do peter out. We just simply don't know by by how much and by when. There are huge levels of immunity that people have gained through infection, previous infection, and many people have been vaccinated, and, of course, the boosters are available. Uh, and the importance of ensuring, you know, not becoming complacent at a stage like this is also critical. I wonder whether you would support the much-speculated um, ending of the state of disaster. The president tweeting in the last couple of days, it was yesterday, I think, at 6.17pm, we are looking into ending the state of national disaster, but must ensure that we have the necessary health measures in place to help us effectively manage the pandemic. Um, he is not overly confident, but is beginning to think about lifting the state of national disaster. Would it be, in your view, the right thing to be doing right now? Well, I think we are at a stage of the pandemic where we can, for instance, drop some measurements because we're in an interwave period. As far as the state of disaster dropping that is concerned, I think most scientists in the country have argued so far very publicly that it is time to look at dropping that. The reason it takes so much time is because in order to be sure that we can continue to manage this pandemic if there's a crisis, so in order to do things like to announce 
from tomorrow everyone is going to wear masks if we have stopped doing that or there's going to be a curfew. We need regulations in place that allows for that. If we don't have them as things stand right now, we would have to present things and we would, and that could take, you know, several months, um, to be able to implement those things. So if we drop mask wearing now and we don't have a state of disaster and we don't have the other new regulations in place, it means in some cases that it would take three months of gazetting to be able to introduce a new measure. So if we get that wild new variant in the middle of everything, we're not going to be able to implement measures quickly enough. So yes, I think the state of disaster is probably it's time to probably end it, but not before we have proper regulations in place that helps us to mitigate a crisis should one emerge. Let's talk about money. Um, journalism notoriously uh, makes billion... No, it doesn't. I'm sorry, that was something else. It was another profession. It was banking. Um, the, the Journalism is notorious for long hours, underappreciation, and not great pay rates. And um, specialising certainly helps, and I'm not going to ask about uh, particular incomes, but have you, over the years, as a specialist health reporter, been able to create a comfortable lifestyle for yourself in which you been able to invest some money and put some away for the future yes i think i have and it's come very gradually um i started off you know when i had my first job it was at the sabc in the eastern Cape, and that's where i became interested in health reporting i was a radio reporter before i was a, a journalist i studied speech therapy you know and i, I finished the course and knew throughout I didn't want to be speech therapist, so I saved money during that time to be able to do journalism. And as I progressed um, from, say, a junior reporter to a little bit more senior, um, my salary increased. I think the biggest sort of difference in salary happened when I left South Africa for a while and I worked for a media development organization in Kenya and also in the United States, because that gave me that to be able to head up a donor-funded organization. I couldn't do it before that. And the reason I couldn't is because I didn't understand how to raise funds. I didn't understand how to budget and manage those funds. And if you can't do that, um, you first of all don't know how to get the money for an organization, but you also don't know how to maintain it. And I think when I gained those skills and could put it together with journalism skills, I had more of a package to sell and that resulted in a more substantial um, income than just being a reporter. And I am very grateful for that break that I made to be able to acquire those skills. It doesn't mean I necessarily liked it. I didn't like sitting in an office in Washington, D.C. and just raise funds, but I also wouldn't have been able to do what I do now and get a good income for it if I didn't spend that time learning how to do it. One of the biggest risks we all face, of course, when we start in a low-paying job and as our salary improves over time, is that our lifestyle expands to meet the salary or expands to go beyond the salary because you never spend what you earn. You always spend more. You borrow a bit of money and you, and you get into some bad habits. Did you fall into any of those traps? No, I didn't really. I'm actually, I think I'm quite a conservative money user. I think I could grow into being a bit freer, you know, un with money. But I am always paranoid I am going to end up with no money. Or um, I had a mother 
who really taught me how, to, you know, was strict with money and you always had to budget for stuff. Then I went through a time in my childhood years where there was financial instability, which made me very, very scared of not having money. So I am almost like a paranoid saver when it comes to money. Um, so I haven't ever had the courage, sort of, because of a history of a little bit of fear around it, to have an extravagant lifestyle. It doesn't mean that I um, don't live comfortably, but I live a comfortable middle class life, not a... I'm too scared to spend the money. I'm an obsessive saver. And, and again, uh, I, I'm not sure of your age and your mum's age, but did your mum sort of grow up in the shadow of the Great Depression? Because so many people whose parents did um, would, would be incredibly influenced by that sort of level of, of real fear around what it means to be poor. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, she, she, my mum grew up relatively poor, Um and I think that um, she, she's no longer alive. I lost her when, when I was in high school. But I think that made her very adamant to be sure that there's enough money around her um, or that she has enough, that, that she manages the money in a, in a sort of like a strict way so that she knows she has some tomorrow. But yes, I think she does come from that era where people, you know, were pretty strict about money and where there wasn't a lot of it going around. Um, and, and yeah, that's it. And you know, we, we we've been through so many crises in this the last you know decade, uh, global financial crisis, and then into this latest crisis. Where, uh, frankly, you know, you you may become slightly complacent about your place in the world and slightly complacent about your income levels, but that you suddenly realize that that can change in a heartbeat, and that's got to become a realization. Has it changed your view on money at all? Yeah, I think I had that view, you know, since a child because there was a bit of financial instability and I did see my father's business got liquidated and I did see from quite a stable financial life to all of a sudden everything was just gone. And I think that has shaped my way of how I view money today and trying to make sure that there is something, <laughs> if something goes wrong. So yes, I, I think in my case, that definitely shaped my entire view of how I deal with it. But I think, you know, that is not necessarily the way to live your whole life. It's good to be sure that there's something for tomorrow. But I think there's also um, a lot of limiting behavior. If you don't, if you have the money, if you don't spend it in a way that it helps you to go forward. So I've learned in my work life, for instance, I've been very stingy with donor money, not wanting to buy anything. And, and we still don't do that. But I've learned, for instance, say an example would be we are now um, well established enough for me to say if people need recorders to, you know, record interviews with, that it doesn't have to be the cheapest recorder in the shop. It can be the, rather a little bit more expensive and then last longer and make people feel that they can trust the recorder. Where previously, a few years ago, I would have said, you know, you just take the cheapest one available. So there is sense in also trying to invest in products for, um, say, your office or in your personal life that would help you to live your or do your job better or live your life just in a less stressful way. I don't think there's something wrong with that. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, we there, you can also live in a very constrained environment, in a very constrained way, and actually life becomes 
you can suck the joy out of life. And, you know, you talk to financial planners, and it's not just about no, 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 no. It's about creating an environment in which you can say yes occasionally too and, and properly, you know, say, you know, this life is actually a life worth living. And uh, we are within reasonable bounds. Um, also, treat yourself occasionally. Do you, do you treat yourself occasionally to something nice? Yeah, you know, I definitely spend far too much time in Willis food on the each weekend. So yes, I, I do do those things. And you know, when I was about ten years ago, I um, I think I won a journalism award, and I took all the money and went to buy a very very expensive what what, what was expensive to me coffee machine. And I use that thing till today. I swear it makes me start the day better. I've never been sorry about that. So yes, I do. And um, I, you know, I have a, a daughter and I love going on weekends away with her. Um, my husband loves going fishing on those weekends. So it is freedom. And then I would go with her. And those things do cost money. So yes, I do stuff like that. I haven't done outrageous things like, I don't know, like go on a six month sabbatical or something. But um, I think those things have a place, certainly. And I've also, you know, I've, I've learned a lesson this year. Like we moved to new offices at Bekatisa and it's beautiful offices that look much better than our previous offices because there was a designer and all of those things. And we didn't pay for those offices. And you know what it's, the reason we got them is because our building forced us to move up to another floor because during COVID people gave up their offices and we were a really small place on our previous floor and there was a lab, a laboratorium that wanted to take over the whole floor. And initially I said, no, I refuse to move. Um, we spent money on our previous office and I'm not going to move. And they said, we'll pay for your cost. You can move and we'll take care of everything. And I didn't believe them. I um, <laughs> was too sort of rigid in my belief. And you know what? Today, because um, we then did move and we negotiated, we have a beautiful office at no cost for ourselves. So I also learned that you mustn't be so rigid in the ways that you think about it's, negotiations with money because they can turn out well. Yeah. It's the biggest constraint of being a journalist first. That's the trouble there. Mia, thank you so much yeah. for talking to us this evening. Mia Milan, South Africa's, I think, most credible voice on the COVID crisis. Certainly we've all depended very heavily on her wisdom, her understanding and her ability to communicate the blooming complexity of the thing so crisp in a, such a crystal clear way.